and welcome to another episode of You Are Your Uterus, A History. This is episode six, and it is entitled The Sadness of Madness, From 19th Century Crazy to Britney Spears' Conservatorship. Now, what am I going to talk about today? Well, last time we talked about the 19th century feminine ideal, and I, I paralleled it to the 1950s, uh, where there are these structures in place that serve as boundaries or parameters for acceptable female behavior. In the 19th century, these parameters were quite narrow. Uh, you had to be obedient, quiet, submissive, kind, motherly, a devoted, dutiful wife. And what I'm going to talk about today is what happened to all those women who either by choice or the way they're built are unable to fit into those narrow parameters. And I really hope that there's a recognition that this is still in place today. And that is why today's episode is so relevant to women today. Whatever your age, whatever your predilections, it's because women are still not allowed to behave in ways that their mind and body are telling them to. And the perfect example is anger. It's been a lot in the news lately. I've noticed there have been a couple books to this effect in the last few years. I've been talking about it for quite a, quite a long time in my courses. And that's because a lot of times what is passion for a woman, what is devotion, uh, comes across as anger to a patriarchy. And women aren't supposed to be angry. Women are supposed to be cooperative and conciliatory. But you know what? Sometimes you just get mad. And the reality is, is that who gets to define what is angry, what is passion, and then what is crazy? Well, I'll tell you who does. It is a male patriarchal society. And in the 19th century, in particular, there was a rise in psychiatry and in uh, asylums for quote unquote crazy people. And this is where we really see a male medical establishment attempting in many ways to control women who don't fit into what the model of quote woman is. Now, there are a couple of books I want to tell you about that I have used uh, for today and also are just so illuminating. The first one is called Mad, Bad, and Sad Women and Women and the Mind Doctors by Lisa Apignanesi. The second book, The Female Malady, Women, Madness, and English Culture from 1830 to 1980 by Elaine Shoalwater, I think is the most approachable of the books for a, an everyday audience. It's really clear. It's focused. It's really easy to understand where she's coming from. And then there's another one called They Say You're Crazy by Paula J. Kaplan, and it is subtitled How the World's Most Powerful Psychiatrists Decide Who's Normal. <clears throat> well, in the 19th century, it was male doctors, quote, psychiatrists, and the emerging field of mental health that led to this uh, diagnosis of crazy among so many women. And what is it that makes you crazy? Well, for money doctors, it's the rejection of motherhood. 
It is the rejection of wifehood. It is the desire for something other than what society has carved out as your proper and ex acceptable place in society. And as I said, this has really long tentacles that reach right to today, i.e. Britney Spears conservatorship, which I'll talk about at the end of this episode. But what happens here is that what we see are male doctors looking at women and saying, okay, you must be crazy because your inability to embrace your designated role has led you to rebellion or what they considered weird behavior. No less a personage than Charles Dickens visited an asylum, St. Luke's Hospital in 1851. Dickens was really curious about these quote-unquote mad women, and he described them. This is a quote. There was the brisk, vain, pippin-faced little old lady in a fantastic cap, proof, proud of her foot and ankle. There was the old young woman with the disheveled, long, light hair, spare figure, and weird gentility. There was the vacantly laughing girl, requiring now and then a warning finger to admonish her. There was the quiet young woman almost, well, and soon going out. He also was very clear in the reality of the ratio of men to women. He stated that the experience of the asylum proved to him that insanity is, quote, more prevalent among women than among men. And indeed, uh, there were 18,759 inmates throughout the century at St. Luke's Hospital, and 11,162 of them were women. I did the math, that's 62%. And this 62% reminds me very much of the great European witch hunts of the 16th, 17th, and early 18th century, where in that case, 90% of those accused and arrested for witchcraft were women. Now, there was also in 1878 a clear government response to this. An act was passed titled the Madhouse Act of 1828. And what it did here is that it drove out any kind of women in positions of authority in the quote-unquote madhouses or asylums. Um, before it became the bastion of male doctors, there were matrons and nurses and caregivers that tried to help these women, but they were pushed aside and they were pushed aside because of, quote, of course, they were not doctors. Never mind that they couldn't go to medical school to become doctors. The reality was, is that men felt the only proper diagnosis of crazy or lunatic uh, had to come from a male doctor. So what you end up with is an asylum that is populated by women, but run by men. Now, the next question to ask yourself is, why so many women? Well, the doctors at the time debated, and there are a few outlying factors that were posited. The first one is poverty, because in the 19th century, poverty was considered a moral cause of insanity. 
Women received more relief from, there were poor laws uh, in Britain in the 19th century, and there were more women receiving this poor law relief than men. And there were more women who suffered from what they called lactational insanity because poor women could not afford to stop nursing their children and would nurse them to very late. And this would cause, according to the doctors, this lactational insanity. Never mind that there are socioeconomic and cultural factors that contributed to poverty for women, especially single mothers who were in charge of one or more children. In the 19th century, poverty was considered the fault of the poor person. Male or female, there was always this pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of mentality that you, you're only poor because you aren't working hard enough or you're not trying hard enough. Now, of course, many of us today look at that and say, wow, really? Well, it's still around. There are commentators who often point to welfare and single mothers and point out that women, I remember when I was growing up, they would say women have more kids so they could get more welfare, which is ridiculous. The point is, is that there are very, very deep-rooted social and economic factors that contribute to poverty among women. And those were completely ignored, of course, by 19th century doctors and arguably to a certain extent today. But why more women than men? Why did more women succumb to craziness than men? Well, yes, you are correct. It is because of the instability of a woman's reproductive system. And uh, her sexual, emotional, and rational control were all affected by her reproductive system. Now, interestingly, the reproductive system, that they refer to all of the processes, starting with puberty and the first menses a girl has, moving on to pregnancy and lactation, childbirth, postpartum, menopause, all of those, according to 19th century doctors, weakened the mind and made it easier for insanity to creep in. And of course, there's no parallel to men. So this was a very clear and medical and scientific explanation. I hope you're noting the irony in uh, my voice. Here's a quote from a 19th century doctor. Women become insane during pregnancy, postpartum, during lactation, and at the age when menses first appear and then disappears. The sympathetic connection existing between the brain and the uterus is plainly seen by the most casual observer. Okay, so uh, as I have titled this, You Are Your Uterus, A History, we are seeing right here that the way in which women's behavior is understood is always through the lens of your physiological processes tied to your uh, reproductive organs. I just think of the parallel to the witch hunts because I spent a lot of time studying that. And in that respect, the belief was that, well, women are more susceptible to the devil. They're easier to convince. Does anybody remember what we talked about with Eve? Uh, that women are more lustful and therefore they're more open to uh, being seduced 
uh, by the devil. And of course, women had no power. So their desire for power and for revenge against those that they feel had uh, hurt them in some way also contributed to that. So to me, this just then becomes rather than a religious and a cultural understanding of why more women are witches than men. Now we have why are more women lunatics or insane than men? Oh, I know. It's because we scientists have determined that at every stage, uh, women's reproductive processes make it so that her brain is susceptible to some kind of insanity or misbehavior because she can't control it. We're going to also look at, look at how male doctors always police women as crazy. And in fact, women today, uh, and this is again from uh, uh, one of the books I, I quoted, is that even today, women outnumber men in the diagnosis of madness. Whether you're looking at the 18th and 19th century to quote the neurotic housewife of the 20th and 21st century. We know statistically that women are more likely to receive psychiatric treatment, whether that's out and out hospitalization, to being restrained, to electroshock therapy. We, if we don't have an asylum, now we have what's called a 5150 and other laws that allow a spouse or a father or another family member to have a psychiatric hold put on you for anywhere from 24 to 72 hours. That's what happened to Brittany. The uh, restraint, I'm going to tell you about when they took her away and slapped her into a gurney and, and restrained her. To psychosurgery, psychotherapy, psychotropic drugs. And you have to ask again, why do psychiatrists see this more in women than men? Well, one author's argument is that it is because there is, of course, a pecuniary interest for doctors but moreover, it is the misdiagnosis based on fundamentally flawed understandings of women's physiology and psychology. If doctors are always going to look at women through the lens of their reproductive processes and attribute any imbalances in their psychological behavior or their emotional behavior to those processes, then there's no way out of this. But again, it's men defining it. Okay, let's back up and go back to the 19th century. And again, I really want you to think about your own experience, or if you're a man and listening to this, to the experience of sisters or mothers or aunts or anyone else that's a female that you know uh, has a menstrual cycle, has gone through menopause, because in the 19th century, they attributed possibility of crazy at every stage. And it begins with puberty. Uh, puberty was considered a very dangerous time for a young woman. And mothers were supposed to closely watch when their daughters were nearing the age when they would have their first menses. Because here's the thing, up until the first menses, little girls were given a lot more freedom. They could run around and play with their brothers. They could, um, they could, uh, be outside. They could be rough and tumble. And it, it was childhood. But as soon as that first menses comes on, 
there was the understanding that a girl's mental health was now going to begin what is a lifelong tangle with the psychological effects of her reproductive system. Listen to what one 19th century doctor warned that moral insanity could easily begin at adolescence when, quote, the pet of the family became inexplicably irreligious, selfish, slanderous, false, malicious, devoid of affection, self-willed, and quarrelsome. Adolescence was a state of, quote, miniature insanity when previously very well-behaved girls turned, quote, snappish, fretful, full of deceit and mischief. Wow. Okay, think of that. Now, I have kids. A lot of people have kids, or you've been a teenager. <laughs> uh, I used to refer, before I had kids and I visited my brother and his kids a lot, I used to refer to my wonderful niece as the surly teenager, because no matter what, she was so surly. And when she became an adult, she goes, you know what, Aunt Mickey, you are so right. I was a surly teenager. It is part of adolescence for everyone. It is the time when you tell your parents that you hate them or that you don't want to live in the house, that, that you hate it here, that you wish you could run away, that, you know, so let's just let's just agree that adolescence is a, a difficult phase for male or female but of course for doctors it was tied up with the first menses now one factor that played into this is there are some estimates and this is a very difficult estimate to make that up to 25% of girls had no idea what was happening to them when they started their first menstrual cycle, that they had no information, whether from a mother or anyone else, about what was happening. So, of course, we've seen this in movies and novels and TV shows. What happens when you start hemorrhaging from your vagina and you have these horrible, horrible cramps, you probably think you're dying. And the reason is, is that, of course, Victorian prudery, 19th century prudery, wouldn't allow women to talk about menstruation or bodily functions. And of course, it was something to be ashamed of or to be hidden. It's not something you walked around talking about. Now, we know this is still a very big problem in many cultures where menstruation itself is a dirty, shameful act. And there is a, a desire to remove women from the social context during that time or to see them differently. In addition, when you talk about pregnancy and postpartum, those were also times when women were particularly susceptible towards quote-unquote insanity. But what happens when you are slowly becoming a, a, a young woman and then a woman who marries and have children, whether starting with puberty and moving into that phase, is that you now realize how little power you have and how dependent you are on a male society to protect you, to heal you, to help you if you were in some sort of mental trouble. So whether it's postpartum and even menopause, the belief about menopause was that this 
quote, great upheaval in a woman's life is due to the fact that she now no longer has a role in society. But rather than seeing it through a social lens and a cultural lens of, oh, if women's major role is to be a wife and mother, and now you're menopausal and you no longer are able to have children and you might even be a widow, what is your function in life? Again, by seeing it through the lens of reproductive organs, you miss out on a huge social context. There were some doctors and there were some commentators, intellectuals, writers, who started to recognize that, hey, those struggles aren't because of just the reproductive processes. It's not that they're going to discount them. After all, as one physician said, uh, the death of the reproductive facility is accompanied by struggles which implicate every organ and every function of the body. And that is true for your whole life, even when you cease to have the ability to have children. But these other commentators said, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait a minute. Is it possible that maybe the lack of mental stimulation, the inability to satisfy intellectual curiosity, the lack of fulfillment beyond wife and mother, and, and especially if you have what the 19th century would have called a calling or a vocation. In other words, you felt yourself drawn to something that wasn't just wife or children. Now, in the 19th century, oftentimes it's instead of, and that lasted well into the 20th century, to the late 20th century. The belief was that you couldn't be both. How could you possibly be a, a doctor when women were finally allowed to go to medical school if you were also a wife and mother? We are still grappling with those issues, and that's in some ways a separate subject. But it's the point that women have callings. They have vocations they wish to pursue. You may not know it when you're young. You may not know it until you're in your 20s or 30s. That's fine. But the point is, is that there is something within you, your heart, your mind, your soul, that is calling you, that is saying, this is what I want to do. Whether it's art, philosophy, education, history, sports, medicine, the law, politics. Women have those callings just like men do, but women aren't allowed to have those callings in as much as following them creates a complete head-on collision between what you're supposed to be and how you're supposed to act and that calling within you. So the first thing some commentators said is, well, let's just not educate women because education is really bad because that kind of opens up your mind to knowledge and to understanding and to a broader perspective. So if you educate someone, if you educate a woman and then she's able to read and then she's able to ooh, maybe read the Bible for herself in the 19th century, maybe read the works of philosophers the works of politicians, go to speeches and listen to locals. Well, you know, that's not good because you're supposed to be happy in your domestic role. That is where the creator and now science 
and medicine all say you belong. So there will be a huge battle for women's education throughout the 19th century. I will touch on it in a later lecture when we look at the origins of women's colleges, where there was this huge fight uh, among uh, in American society. Why do women need college? What good is going to study philosophy and mathematics and astronomy going to do for a woman? So, uh, and that ultimately education is bad because it pulls away your, your mental faculties from where they should be focused, which is on, you know, your reproductive faculties. So if a woman wants those things, if a woman wants something beyond the parameters of her carved out role, what happens? She is rejecting her true nature. She needs to be trained. She needs to be taught what an important role she has. Now, there is a great example in the 19th century. There are many, and uh, historians, and especially the historian who wrote Mad, Bad, and Sad, wrote about, uh, you have to look, we don't, we don't have the diaries of women who were in the asylums. What we have are novels uh, like Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, later in the century, uh, uh, The Yellow Wallpaper, um, Kate Chopin's The Awakening, where we see the struggles of women who don't fit into what society says they have to fit into. But I'm going to tell you about a woman who you may have heard of before. Her name is Florence Nightingale. And some of you go, yeah, yeah, I've heard of her. Isn't she a nurse? Wasn't she a nurse? Yes, she was. She really began uh, the idea of nursing as a profession during the Crimean War in the late 1850s. Now, when I was a kid and I went to the library at my elementary school and I wanted to check out books about, I just was naturally drawn to women, I basically had a couple choices. I had Clara Barton, who was an American nurse, Florence Nightingale, and Helen Keller, the uh, child who was uh, deaf, uh, unable to speak, and blind. Of course, never mind that those, bi those biographies did not touch at all on the other parts of these incredible women that really fill out their story. So, for example, if you read the first chapter of Lies My Teacher Told Me, you will see that Helen Keller went on to become an incredibly important activist during the progressive era, the late 19th and early 20th century. She marched in suffrage parades. She was a socialist. She became a communist. She fought for workers' rights because she saw the inequities in society. Yeah, well, that wasn't in the biography I read, nor was Florence Nightingale's incredible mental struggle. Nightingale takes on the idea of insanity and says, the reason I'm going crazy isn't, it's because of the socialization and the cultural expectations and limitations imposed on women. And so that's her context for understanding insanity. Yeah, I'm insane because I don't want to get married. I have another calling in my heart and mind. I am insane because inside me, I don't feel like everyone else. And she wrote this in an autobiographical novel entitled Cassandra. And 
she saw her family as the main source of the oppression against her. And of course, her family is a microcosm of the larger society. In other words, her family's desire to have her married and take her place in a middle-class household as a wife and mother was no different than her whole society at large. So it was her family she saw as the pressure. And immediately, because I had just done all this reading on Britney Spears' conservatorship, I thought of her family and especially of her father. And we'll get into that in a minute. Okay, so before Florence Nightingale becomes the famous nurse, the lady with the lamp, as they called her, she suffered immeasurably for years, including suicidal thoughts. She wrote in her semi-autobiographical novel, Cassandra, she said that, quote, as a young child, I was obsessed with the idea that I was not like other people that I was a monster and I was going to be found out. Now, the use of the word monster is very important. And gosh, I wish I could spend a lot of time on this because monster is a word that has been used to denigrate women who fall outside of their role for centuries. Most notably in the 16th century, when we had what was called the age of queens or female monarchs, we had Elizabeth I, Mary Tudor, Mary Queen of Scots, Catherine de' Medici, Mary of Guise, uh, all of these queens. And we had a famous book written by a male, a Protestant named John Knox, and it was called The First Blast of the Trumpet of the Monstrous Regiment of Women, because he considered women who wielded any kind of political power to be monsters that it is such an unnatural thing for women to have authority over men or to be seen in the same context as men in this in that situation politics that they are monsters so monsters is a key noun and it is also showing how nightingale and other women internalize this idea that you were this monstrosity inside of you, this ugly thing tangled up within your insides with the veneer of gentility on the outside. That's a really, really powerful emotion. And for Nightingale, it really affected her. And it emerged when she became of age and um, her, her parents were pressuring her to get married. In the late 1840s, perfectly acceptable young middle-class man wanted to marry her. She said no. Her parents were insane. And she said to her mother, look, I want to be a nurse. I want to do something more. I don't want this for my life. But her mother refused to let her engage in any kind of training or education that would have allowed her to pursue this profession. And in fact, in Cassandra, Nightingale talks about how her mother kept her at home and really confined her. And so Nightingale began manifesting physical symptoms. She would faint. It's a classic Victorian symptom, fainting. She was weak. She would walk around kind of in a, a trance or a daze. And she 
she felt, as she wrote on New Year's Eve, that she was growing insane. So on New Year's Eve of 1850, she wrote, my present life is suicide. I have no desire but to die. Now, this novel became a three-volume treatise. It went through a weird publication history because they didn't want to publish it. It was finally published in a very abridged form in the 20th century. But what she's talking about in this novel is how constricted she felt, how limited she felt, how she had something inside her that wanted to burst out, that she felt that there was more to her as a, let's say it, human being. She's a human being. She is not a set of reproductive organs. She really sees the limitations of her society and she understands that if she begins to have mental instability and physical symptoms, it's not because of her reproductive organs. It's because of being kept in a box, being kept confined. So in her semi-autobiographical novel, by the time Cassandra is 30, all of her zest for life, all her intellectual curiosity all of her sense that she had a duty to contribute to society in, as something more was gone. And all that was left was this monster inside. So in the novel, Cassandra's vision of herself, not as a thwarted savior, as, as she really wanted other women to recognize themselves in Cassandra, that there were lots and lots of women out there who felt the same way. And I will read to you later on a very famous quote of Elizabeth Cady Stanton's, where she talks about how she was going crazy at home with five kids when there was so much for her to do with respect to pursuing women's rights. So Nightingale as Cassandra is not only an example of thwarted humanity, of the thwarted accomplishments that a human being can reach when given the opportunity, she's also thwarted because she's not able to get her message out to other women. And this is where the title or the name Cassandra comes in. Some of you who love mythology may know this, but others may remember it. Cassandra was a famous figure in Greek mythology who had been cursed by the god Apollo why? Because Apollo was pursuing her and she did not want to succumb to his advances. So he cursed her to always prophesize the truth, but no one would believe her. And in this case, this Cassandra Nightingale is saying, I'm like that. I'm trying to tell you the truth, the reality of a woman's life, and no one is listening. And instead, I have become a monster. Because of male doctors that tie insanity to reproductive functions, there is not a society uh, that treats women as human beings that have those kind of feelings. And the law, of course, in addition to custom and all these doctors, did the same thing. Women, remember, I talked about the femme couvert, have no legal existence. They have no legal rights. They 
they have nothing of their own once they become married. So the law itself does not allow a woman any room to challenge society's expectations of what she is supposed to be doing. Ultimately, what we see is a patriarchal society, once again, using the uterus and the reproductive organs to relegate women to a very confined role in the private sphere. That's another term for the household. But it also it doesn't mean just like literally locked in the house. It means doing those domestic things. You go and visit other women. You have charity functions, this kind of thing. But you cannot have any kind of function in public. You do not have the capacity to have any kind of calling or vocation that takes you out of that private sphere. But let's look at the reality, all right? Let's look at how men and women are treated. I really want you to think about right now, because the 19th century is not so different from the 1950s. Uh, when we talk about the second wave of feminism, we'll talk about the 50s and 60s. And once again, how this incredibly crushing expectation of women staying in the household and raising children, and that is what's supposed to make you happy, dominated women's lives for decades. And as I said, the punishment decade of the 50s followed the freedom of the 40s and World War II and women earning their own money and working outside of the home and recognizing that they had the capacity to do a lot of things. Well, what you saw in the 50s and 60s is they may not have been putting them in asylums. They drugged them, Valium, uppers, all the rest of it. And, and, and we'll talk about it. But you, you have to think about it because it's when you look at this, it, it, it's a continuum. I don't see it as ending. And today, it may be a little less blatant, although in some examples, it's not. First of all, let's talk about the idea of anger, okay? Why aren't women allowed to get really pissed off without there being the typical reaction, oh boy, it must be that time of the month. Or if you're pregnant and you're forgetful, oh well, you're, you're pregnant. We can't expect you to fully function as a human being. Don't women go to the Olympics having their periods? And don't women go to the Olympics after they've given birth to children? I mean, it's ridiculous. The fear is that women's anger will lead to violence and women aren't allowed to display that kind of anger. Very often in my own experience, it took me a long time to recognize that it was okay to be mad all the time studying history and my father breathing down my neck. Why are there no women Mozarts or Beethovens or Galileos? And, you know, at 11 years old, I couldn't really answer that question. Now I can. Uh, duh. No education, no opportunities. It was the idea that I was mad. I was mad about all this. And every time I go through this material again, I get even more mad. So rather than getting complacent, when I read Susan B. Anthony's defense of herself at her trial, when I read Alice Paul's defense of herself when they tried to put her in an insane asylum when she went on a hunger strike because she considered herself a political prisoner for her picketing for the right to vote, I get really mad. 
But let's look at some examples. And there are so many, but these just sort of came to mind. What's been in the news recently is the Serbian tennis player who refused to get a COVID vaccine. And we had a, what, three-week soap opera of does he play in the Australian Open or doesn't he? And this particular person, I think it was on Twitter, said, wow, can you imagine if that was a female tennis player? And he brought up the examples of Serena Williams and Noemi Osaka. And in the case of Noemi Osaka, she refused to do press conferences uh, a couple of years ago because she said she it was her mental health. Obviously, Simone Biles in the last Olympics also said, I can't do this because my mind is not connecting with what I need to do in order to fulfill that function. And they were raked over the coals. Serena Williams recently, and I remember seeing this, I can't remember the match, the umpire made a call and Serena challenged it. And she then uh, referenced what she thought was an accusation of cheating. And she was angry and she was saying, I don't cheat. I've never cheated in my life. And it's like she was having to defend herself for being angry. And I think of all of the male tennis players who slam their rackets, who, God, I mean, if you were alive in the 70s and you saw John McEnroe play, wow, <laughs> Uh, not only did he slam rackets, he used the most obscene language to refer to line judges and umpires. And he was called the bad boy of tennis. Did anybody say he wasn't? I mean, it was poor form. It wasn't good manners. But no, but the reaction to him was very, very different than when a Serena Williams gets angry. Now, of course, in Serena's case, we have a whole other level. Serena doesn't just have to deal with being an angry woman. She has to be, she has to deal with the trope and the stereotype of the angry black woman. Oh yes, a whole different set of cultural attitudes based on racist constructions that go back deep into our history of black women are also curtailing her ability to scream and holler the way a John McEnroe could. The idea that somehow, in Serena's case, not only her behavior, but her looks, the French Open wouldn't let her wear her black cat suit because they, it didn't show respect for the game. Oh my God, you can't understand my teeth are gnashing. It's this idea that, that somehow expressing herself as an individual, or in this case, wearing an item of clothing that she felt helped her perform better at what is her calling, her vocation, is treated in a sexualized and, and racist way. So just think about the reality of, again, female sports figures. I just thought of another one. Several decades ago, when the women won the World Cup in soccer, the great player Mia Hamm, I remember seeing this on TV, did a, a knee slide and pulled off her, her soaking wet, sweaty jersey and was wearing a sports bra. Oh my God, you would think that she was walking around naked on the field the way they treated her. Men take off their shirts all the time, twirl them in the air, celebrate. Nope, even though she's completely covered and wearing 
an item of clothing that covers far more than a bikini does in uh, beach volleyball, somehow that was seen within the construct of acceptable female behavior. Now, I'd like to mention one other case of modern anger, and that is the confirmation hearings of Brett Kavanaugh, who now sits on the Supreme Court, but only got there by two votes. Thank you, Susan Collins, for not voting against him when it was clear he was not of the kind of temperament that serves judicial review well. Okay, if you remember, he was up, he was nominated by Donald Trump, and he was told by a lot of his advisors, don't go there, this guy's got a lot of baggage. And it comes out that he had attempted, according to a woman named Christine Blasey Ford, to assault her while she was passed out drunk at a party back in the early 80s, I believe it was. During the testimony, she was questioned, not by the male senators, who who didn't want to look bad like they did in the Anita Hill hearing, when uh, some of the male senators asked if she was given to fantasy life, if she was sexually attracted to to Clarence Thomas. It was the most disgusting display. I urge you to go back and look at it. It's all, you can find it all over the internet. It's it's mind-blowing what they said. So they're like, oh no, we don't want to make that mistake again. So they got a woman prosecutor to do the questioning, which only made it look worse. And in every instance, this woman was controlled, soft-spoken, clear. She gave details, all that she could remember. And she said with 100% certainty, her words, 100% certainty that it was this man. Now, when it was Kavanaugh's term to be questioned by the Senate Judiciary Committee, he lost it. He hammered his head, the table, beat his chest, screamed and hollered about how much he liked beer and how terrible this was. And whatever your thoughts are on who was telling the truth and who wasn't, what it did reveal was an absolutely horrific temperament that all it took was this accusation with a lot of evidence to turn you into this this beast, never mind that all they had to do was subpoena some of the witnesses, one of whom was Kavanaugh's very good friend who wrote a novel with a character named Brett O. Kavanaugh. I mean, my God, really? He doesn't get subpoenaed to testify? In any event, my point is this. If Christine Blasey Ford had jumped up on the table and pointed and screamed at them like I would have wanted to do, can you imagine? I mean, even Anita Hill, who was soft-spoken, factual, never raised her voice, was clear in her answers, was constantly berated with weird ideas about why she was talking about sexual harassment and the things that she alleged Clarence Thomas did to her. So those are examples of women who had every right to be angry and who wanted to be angry, but couldn't. The last one I'll mention. During the debates for the 2016 election, 
Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton debated several times. And in one of those debates, and in fact, Saturday Night Live did a skit on it, Trump just kept kind of circling her in the back, kind of like stalking her or kind of circling her like a great white shark. I mean, a lot of us, and, and, and this came out later in social media, were like, why didn't you just turn around and say, what the fuck, dude? Get back to your podium. What are you doing? But she couldn't do that. She can't do that. He can scream and holler and tell lies, but she couldn't. So we have a lot of baggage from this idea that women have to behave in certain ways and can't express certain emotions because it then becomes something that is unacceptable and reflects badly on our humanity and on our ability to function in the public sphere. Okay, next we're going to talk about Britney Spears' conservatorship, because as that was happening, I was blown away by the continuity between 19th century women deemed crazy and either locked up or confined or have their agency taken away and what happened to this poor young woman. It's been all over the news. And so I'm going to assume that most people who are listening to this have heard of the end to the 13-year conservatorship. We've all heard the horrible details, how they monitored her sex life, decided whether she could get an IUD. It, it, the invasiveness of it was really astounding. Also, interestingly, during the 13-year conservatorship, recorded four albums, went on a global tour, and did a four-year Las Vegas residency and that totaled up to $131 million in earnings. I'm taking these facts from a July 2021 article in the New Yorker magazine uh, because I really wanted to go back to the beginning. Because as a historian, I kept saying to everybody, don't you see how this is the same as the 19th century? Don't you see how this is just like what they used to do to women when women behaved in ways that men said, oh, that's crazy. There's a lot of other factors involved. I'm not sure anybody would have uh, put a conservatorship on her for as long as they did, if it were for the fact that she had huge amounts of money. And also, I believe in this case, the family is a big part of this, despite the fact that at the time this happened, Brittany was in her late 20s and clearly was an adult capable of making her own decisions, although that's not what they said. So what I want to look at is what led up to it. So in other words, if you're going to say to someone, a conservatorship is a guardianship, it's a legal mechanism in which you take the personal, economic, and legal decision-making power away from an adult and give it to others because that person cannot make those decisions for themselves. They can't take care of their person. They certainly can't take care of their money or the legalities of, of their estate or whatever else is involved. And most of the time you see conservatorships, it's very often for elderly people who are suffering from dementia or other really limiting physical and mental problems that makes them vulnerable to outsiders 
or even family members taking advantage of them, usually for monetary gain. Obviously, there are lots of conservatorships that don't involve lots of money and that they are clearly intended because somebody needs that kind of legal representation for them because they mentally are unable to do it. However, very often, you know, and this, this is also in novels and movies and in real life, uh, there's an elderly person with a lot of money, can be male or female, but very often female, and some unscrupulous person enters their life and attempts to kind of take over. And a lot of times that could be a distant family member, a close family member, and that families end up fighting with each other, or it could be an outsider. But the point is, is that there is uh, a lot of money at stake. And that certainly was the case with Brittany. She had been a child star, a mouseketeer, along with her buddy Justin Timberlake, since she was a little kid. And in 2019, interestingly, her dad was removed as the guide of her personal affairs. In other words, all her life, her family, and in particular her father, had been at the helm of directing her personal affairs and obviously her financial affairs. And interestingly, every Thursday at noon, 10 people that were responsible for managing Brittany's legal and business affairs, her public relations, her social media, they met to discuss money, merchandising deals, albums, all that kind of stuff. And one person that has been there described it as Brittany being isolated, medicated, and financially exploited, as well as emotionally abused. That all of those meetings that this person was in, that is ultimately what they came to conclude. Now, I look at it as an issue of patriarchy, because again, the father is intimately involved in this and was at the helm of starting the conservatorship with the cooperation of the rest of her family. Brittany says that she wanted to complain about the conservatorship before, but she was ignored and no, she had no legal representation. And she said that it was like I was dead, like I didn't matter. And she wanted her story to go public. And she didn't want it to stay a secret because she wanted the people who were involved in this to be exposed. And ultimately, as she told the judge, I believe it was last year, all I want is to own my money for this to end and for my boyfriend to drive me in his fucking car. She just wants to be a, a person again, a young female person enjoying her life and the fruits of her labor. But she had been confined in so many ways. Everything she did was monitored. Every communication was monitored. Every part of her life was monitored. And a lot of times what, what I didn't see in some of the current reporting was, why was this allowed in the first place? Why, when you go back to 2008, was this imposed upon her? And then why the hell for 13 years? As I said, a lot of times these are placed on people who are elderly. But for this to last 13 years throughout her 30s, you know, prime years of your life, 
It just makes me so mad. And she even said it in, on September 23rd, Brittany was pissed and God love her. She said it. She said, these people have been exploiting my life. She was lucid, but furious. And before she went before the judge, her little team of people that were exploiting her were very, very worried. And when she went before the judge, she said, ma'am, my dad and anyone involved in this conservatorship and my management who played a huge role in punishing me when I said no, ma'am, they should all be in jail. So she knew what the hell was going on. She just didn't have the means by which she could extricate herself from the situation. And kudos to the Free Britney movement for really bringing to the public's attention. It was a big story when it happened, and then it kind of just fell under the radar until this group started fighting for her to be released from this conservatorship. I look at a person who is, at that time, very clearly within her faculties and very clearly understood what was being done to her. I also question, you know, she had started out as a child star. She did not have the kind of educational background or wherewithal to really understand the legal nuances of what was happening. And also at the beginning, she was denied legal representation. And then when she did get legal representation, it was legal representation that was tied to the people who were putting her under the conservatorship. It wasn't an independent lawyer. Uh, one commentator in this article said, if Brittany had been found holding a severed head with blood dripping from it and the knife in her hands, she would have been given a lawyer because criminals and accused criminals are given legal representation. She was not. Okay. So how does this all start? And this is where I really, really, really hope you think about what I've talked about from the sadness of madness from the 19th century to now. Okay. In 2008, she broke up with Justin Timberlake, and apparently it was very hard on her. They had been Mouseketeers together. She felt rejected. She's now 21 years old and for the first time in her life is going to really be out on the dating scene. Now, remember in 2008, we didn't have the social media that we do now. What we had were the paparazzi and she hung out with Lindsay Lohan and Paris Hilton, and they would go out in Hollywood and party, and the paparazzi were all over them, all over their cars, flashing light bulbs. Now, regardless of what you think of the company she keeps or the influence these young women had on each other, that is not relevant. What is relevant is that they're three young women who are going out and partying and having a great time and the paparazzi won't leave them alone. Now, paparazzi do follow male stars, but you know, if Matt Damon and Ben Affleck and, and, you know, George Clooney or somebody else are all going out. Yeah, the paparazzi would try to take pictures of them, but there's a totally different attitude when you're looking at young women. These women worked hard. Lindsay Lohan was still making movies and Britney Spears was still recording, but the paparazzi were all over them. She was partying. She was smoking a lot of weed. Apparently there was Coke and Molly. She jumped into the Mediterranean. Those are not behaviors that are very different from other 20-somethings 
in that place and time or even now. In your 20s, whether you're using drugs or not, people do fun, crazy stuff, sometimes not showing the best judgment, but that is not a reason to put her under a conservatorship. But because the paparazzi were following her, this was all over the news all the time. Now, a few years prior to this, she had met a dancer named Kevin Federline, who she married within six months of meeting him. She did not have a prenup, which, wow, that that is um, difficult because when you have that kind of money, when your net worth is what hers was, you really need a prenup. So her family, and rightly so, panicked. So they wouldn't allow her to sign the marriage contract until Kevin Federline agreed to limit his stake in her estate. Okay. Her first son was born 10 months later in 2005, and then a second son in September of 06. A few months later, in November of 06, she files for divorce. And her and Federline have an agreement where they split the time with the kids. Now, her kids are really little at this point. One is only a few months old and the other one is maybe over a year. The nights that they didn't have their kids, Federline goes out and parties in Vegas. Brittany goes out and parties. Within a few months, she started displaying behavior that the media and others were designating as crazy. In February of 07 is the famous head shaving uh, incident where uh, people saw video footage of her shaving her head. She also apparently attacked the paparazzi in their cars with an umbrella. So they started calling her crazy. Okay, you know, doing drugs and uh, shaving your head and, you know, bitching at the paparazzi for invading your privacy and hitting their car with an umbrella does not crazy make. But it was really the issue with the kids and the splitting time with the kids that led to this crescendo then allowed her father and other people to put her in a psychiatric hold. Now, was she suffering from postpartum depression? Did anybody talk to her about it? Did anybody uh, help her find help if she was? We know it is very prevalent, but it is also something that is treatable. And what the worst part about it is the isolation women feel. They feel ashamed. Why do I feel this way? Why am I so scared? Why am I nervous around my kid? Why do I not want to be around my kid? You're supposed to love your kid. It's supposed to be instantaneous the second you see your kid. I I don't know about you, but when I had my first child, I didn't know what the hell was going on. And I was 38, okay? So, but yeah, it's a big shock to go from nothing to then this this little creature, (laughs) this wonderful little creature that you're not sure what the hell you're supposed to be doing. But no one discussed it with her. And whether she was suffering from it or not, she definitely felt, I think, isolated. Some people that were her monitors believe that she was using drugs. And so Federline wants primary custody and he gets it. But she gets four days a week, but she has to have a court-ordered monitor with her when she's seeing her kids. Now, during this time, she meets a man named Sam Lufke. I'm not going to get into a lot of names here, but apparently this is a guy who some people described as kind of a Hollywood operator who insinuated himself in the lives of specifically female stars 
Lindsay Lohan was one. And Spears had split up with her longtime manager and was now relying on this, this new guy. Now, at this point, she's 26. He helped her slow down on her work and enjoy her life. According to the New Yorker article, she felt that she was always under pressure to keep working, working, working. And she had been working nonstop since she was a kid. Her dad had been close to her previous manager, the one that she just let go. And both of them were deeply religious, as was the mother and a good friend of the family who then becomes involved in this. These people started talking about a conservatorship. Some people said, no, 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 we don't need that yet. Brittany wasn't sleeping. She was engaging in what people described as erratic behavior. She had a very, very hard time when she was not with her kids. And she would cry a lot when she had to say goodbye to them. Now, remember, these kids are still little kids, you know, and to have to give them up because somebody else has determined that you're a danger to them is very difficult. And she made it known that she wanted her kids with her. She is unable to really explain to people what is going on. So in January of 08, she, a visit with her kid ends and the bodyguard from Kevin Federline was there to bring the kids home. I thought it was interesting that a, a bodyguard went. I don't remember from the article or if it said it, whether he was waiting in a car or not. But every minute she didn't give that kid up was a violation of the custody arrangements. And we all know that a violation of custody arrangements can re result in very serious consequences. She handed the older kid over, but she had the baby with her. And she, quote, locked herself in a bathroom that apparently didn't have a lock. And she didn't want to give the baby up. According to her new manager, this man named Sam Lefty, Federline's lawyers called the police and the fire department, who then called an ambulance. Now, I don't know why. I mean, I think that it's very interesting that she's in the bathroom. Now, apparently she's dressed to go out. She does not have any weapon. There's no lock on the door. And she's crying because she doesn't want her kid to leave. And so they call the cops and the fire department on her and then an ambulance. Now, of course, when this starts to happen, lo and behold, the news crews are there. There's helicopters all over the place. And when her manager shows up, he walks into the house where cops are there and firemen are wielding axes. This is what he said. It looked like a murder scene. He pushed past everyone and opened the bathroom door, which was not locked. And she was holding the baby and he was sleeping. So she gave the baby to her manager who then turned him over or, or I'm sorry, the fireman. Now, this is where it gets strange. Apparently the fireman then strapped her to a gurney and wheeled her into an ambulance. She doesn't say anything. The manager is told she's being put under a 5750, which is an emergency psychiatric hold. This is where a person who's having a mental health episode can be involuntarily hospitalized. And of course, who followed the ambulance and the gurney? The paparazzi. So this is all over the place. Now, I want you to stop right here, okay? Think of... 
your local news, or even a big story. We've all heard stories of men who are holding their children hostage uh, in a domestic situation that has become untenable and either are threatening the kids, threatening the wife and the kids, saying that if the wife doesn't come back, the kids are going to get shot. Um, you can look up the statistics on um, violence against women and violence against children within the domestic context. Explain to me how a young woman without a weapon in an unlocked bathroom holding her baby is then put under a 5750 and strapped to a gurney. Would that have happened to him? I don't remember any man having that happen to him. I mean, in domestic situ violence situations, sometimes they arrest the man and take him away. But, you, you know, this to me seems like way overkill. So who was involved in this? Keverlock, her, her ex-husband gets sole custody. Any visitation is suspended with the assumption that she's endangering the kids. But a lot of people were trying to defend her saying, wait a minute, she's not, she loves those kids. She would never do anything to harm them. And given the facts that were explained in this article and in other places, it does not seem to me that holding your baby in the bathroom and not wanting to give him up and crying and, and carrying on is not the same thing as threatening the safety of your kid. Apparently, after the 5150, the old manager and the father begin to consult lawyers about a conservatorship. And this is where uh, things get really interesting. Again, the father had been in charge of Brittany for most of her life until she got rid of him in 2019 and then got rid of the manager that the father was very close to. But here they are circling, and what they want to do is they say the new manager is the one taking advantage of her and her money, and in order to protect Brittany, we have to put her under a conservatorship so this unscrupulous guy doesn't then take advantage of her. Uh, one photographer at the time said the hospital scene, the scene at home, it was like piranhas circling her. Her father, mother, and her brother had all been on her payroll for years. And according to those close to her, and again, uh, this very well-researched article, Brittany was resentful of their efforts to continually influence her. Um, but their argument was, we want her away from this new manager. Now, whether or not he was unscrupulous, what clearly is happening here is Brittany is saying, I want to run my own life and pick my own people around me. And the father and the old manager and the manager's wife, who was good friends with the pastor, because there is a religious component to this that really smacks to me of patriarchy and authority, they really are getting involved um, and they want her to get away from this guy. So they start to notice Brittany's behavior. She apparently is acting erratic. And it reminded me of Florence Nightingale, where she said she was so 
defeated because of her inability to be who she was, that she started uh, acting what other people deemed as crazy. Well, Brittany apparently combed her hair incessantly, got up and down, changed her clothes. She just started acting what we would describe as weird and concerning. But again, it doesn't seem to me to rise to the level of taking away her authority over her own person, over her money, over her legal status. It's unclear who was going to commit her again, but apparently somebody called a doctor who showed up with the police and busted down the door. The manager said it was like a SWAT team. Again, cops, helicopters, ambulance. There was a police convoy following her. Uh, when she's in the hospital, her family is there and Spears did not want to see them. She did not give the hospital personnel permission to let them into her room. Remember, she's in her late 20s. She doesn't have to see somebody if she doesn't want her. The father apparently was pissed beyond belief that the manager that he believed was unscrupulous was there. And according to witnesses, that's when the father said, that's it, we're getting a conservatorship. And the next afternoon, the family and their supporters gave an account to the dad's lawyer, now this is the father's lawyer, who then wrote up a report and submitted it to the court. One friend said later that she felt exploited because she participated in this and she thought, okay, this is only going to be temporary. I want to help her. But everything started moving really, really quickly. The dad, the father, the brother, friends all go to the court. Of course, Brittany's in the hospital at this point. And the judge, who is now retired, arrived and said, okay, conservatorship granted. Ten minutes later, no questions asked. Nobody talked to Brittany. California law required that a conservatee, in this case Brittany, be given five days notice before the conservatorship would take effect. But you can bypass that if the judge says that the conservatee, Brittany, could suffer, quote, immediate and substantial harm. So a probate lawyer was appointed as her advocate and then a filed a petition to notify Brittany that this was happening, but it was waived. She didn't get that five days. The dad becomes the co-conservator and a co-appointed lawyer, and this petition established this arrangement and somebody apparently checked a box in this petition that said Brittany had dementia. And the father had also filed for a restraining order against her new manager. Now, Brittany had no attorney. And the father would often remind Brittany throughout this conservatorship that he was in charge. And at one time... One witness said that he was absolutely not just domineering, but was in her face all the time. And in one instance, with spit coming out of his mouth, said, I am Britney Spears and called her a whore and a terrible mother. Well, those are the two, two insults to women that always, you know, are the most important because it's going straight to your character, which is all based on your sexuality. And of course, you're a mother and now you're a terrible mother. 
again, throughout the 13-year conservatorship, it does not seem that she had access to her own attorneys. And it was through public outcry and this Free Britney movement and the publicity of it that really turned people's attention to say, hey, wait a minute, why is she still under this? Okay, maybe a, a while ago, a long time ago, 13 years ago, she was acting a little crazy, but now, still? When I look at that, I see Florence Nightingale. I see every woman in the 19th century or women in the 50s who are acting erratically. In this case, Brittany's behavior provided an opening for her father and family to once again assert its dominance over her estate as well as her person. It took years before the father was removed as the conservator over her person and was just the conservator over her money. And when the conservatorship ended, she has made it very clear, as I quoted to you earlier, that she believes all these people belong in jail for the exploitation that they engaged in. So please think about that. Uh, please think about, again, how patriarchy interprets female behavior in a way that continues to contain us, to set parameters on our behavior because of the lens that they are looking through. Okay, I want to thank you for joining me. Please send me comments. I am going to be joining Twitter again. Uh, I can admit I'm not a great Twitter user, but I'm looking at tutorials because uh, I really want to connect with people who are listening to this and who have thoughts of their own and um, thoughts on any part of the podcast. So thank you very much. That's it for this episode. Thank you for joining me on my podcast, You Are Your Uterus, A History, and I invite you to get in touch with me. Please go to my Facebook page, Dr. Victoria Della Torre, and please leave any comments or suggestions that you might have, or feel free to email me at drvdlt at gmail.com. Thanks for joining me. We'll see you next time. This has been a production of the Yali Christina Company.